0: Wow. You got me back there? You got me? Okay. Uh, oh, wait wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, okay, hold on. I got to get these. Uh, these are the things my wife told me not to say. And, uh, no, no, I'm just having fun with her. But uh, she does have advice uh, for me. She asked me yesterday, she said, well, what do you plan to accomplish in your sermon? And I said, your expectations are a little high. I'm just looking at survival, so, so we'll see how it goes. Have you ever played the why game with your children? It goes something like this. You say, it's time for you to go to bed, and they say, why? And you say, well, because it's good for you, and they say, why? And you say, well, because your body needs food and it needs rest, and they say, why? Now, what your children are doing there is they're participating in something similar to what Aristotle called first principle reasoning. You didn't know your kids were that smart, right? First principle reasoning, and that's where we drill down to this lowest level of knowledge that everything is based on. Uh, Stripping away all the assumptions, all the conventions, you go down to this irrefutable uh, lowest level of knowledge that all knowledge is based on, and he called that first principles. Uh, Immanuel Kant called it uh, postulates, and uh, René Descartes called them axioms. And what they argued is that if I could base my decisions on first principles, that I would make less errors in my practice... Less errors in my judgment and my, my and my decisions would be better and more effective. I'll give me an example of a a uh, contemporary uh, uh, first principle reasoner, Elon Musk. They told him this was the assumption: you can't build a battery big enough to power an automobile. It's just too expensive. And he said, Why? 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 And he drills down to the material level and what those materials cost on the commodities market and the process it would take to put them together. And he goes, sure, we can do this. And they built the Tesla. First principles. It's my contention, and what I'm arguing today is, is that forgiveness is a first principle of Christianity. It's one of them. It is a first principle of Christianity. So uh, I was talking to my wife, and uh, she said, well, what are you going to speak on? And I said, forgiveness. And she says, well, that's good. Everybody needs forgiveness. And I go... Yeah, that's actually not the direction I'm going. I want to engage the world through the frame of forgiveness. And she says, David, I have no idea what that means. (laughs) She's a pretty practical person, and I'm lucky that I matched up with her because she keeps me honest. But, in fact, when we played that game, the why game, in our house, uh, she would say, it's time for you to go to bed, and the kids would say, why? And she said, because Mom said so. I mean, that was the first principle. (laughs) We didn't drill down any further than that. But if I, if I had to tell you what I'm talking about, I have a, 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 a summary sentence, if you will. Understanding forgiveness will help us avoid errors in our practice and have a more authentic Christian expression. So what I mean by that is, as we engage the world, as we practice our Christian life in our homes and in our churches and in our relationships, that it would be better, it would be more effective have less errors, that it would be more authentic if we kept forgiveness in mind. You might say, okay, well, I'm still not following all this philosophical mumbo-jumbo. You know, Gus is saying, break it down a little bit more. Forgiveness is important to us. It is a big deal. It's not just something we put up on a shelf and we pull down every once in a while. It's not something for John, but not for Debbie. It's for all of us, and it's a big deal, and it affects how we express our church, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And I'd like to show you that. Uh, Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 7. We'll look at a parable. Um, And uh, I'll I'll set it up before we read it. Of course, there are other passages that are similar to this one. And uh, scholars tell us that they're different. This is unique. I'm not going to spend any time on that. I'm just going to talk about this particular one that Luke has. It's a story. And and the story has a small parable inside of it. The small parable is a parable of two debtors. There are three people in the story. There's Jesus, and there's Simon the Pharisee. Now, Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to come to dinner. It's not a hostile invitation. He really, you know, if we're reading Luke right, the jury's still out. You know, who is this Jesus? Who is this guy? And so he invites him, and he lays out a spread. And in typical Middle Eastern fashion, rather than uh, sitting up at a table, they recline at the table, and their their legs are extended out from there. There's a third person who's in the story. She's a sinful woman. Now, we're all sinners, right? But this woman is famous for her sins. She's known in the city for her sins. I'll let you speculate on what her profession was, but she's one of those women that you could point to her and you could say, she's one of those. And she's going to come. She's heard Jesus is there, and she's going to come and she's going to anoint him. She has a container of valuable oil that's uh, perfumed, and she's going to come and anoint Jesus. How does she get there? Does Jesus invite her? Uh, Luke doesn't spend much time on that. And scholars who have been troubled by how does this woman gain access to this thing, they say, well, for some of these big banquets, the poor people hang out on the fringes and they get some of the leftovers or some of the the, uh, spillovers and that helps them. But that doesn't answer the question, why is she there? Because we all know that the Pharisees are pretty freaked out about clean and unclean. What they eat how they eat and who they eat with, and she doesn't belong there. Uh, I don't know if Sesame Street still does that song, but when ours were kids, they had that song, which one of these things doesn't belong there? Which one of these things does? She didn't belong. And yet, she's there. She begins washing Jesus' feet. And, um, and the tears start to come down. Now, Luke tells us that, the, that it's not sadness that she's crying over, but this exuberant joy, this, this love, this, this passion that she has, this gratefulness that she has. She starts to cry, and then the rivers come. I don't know about you and your family. The women in my family do not like crying in public, right? And this girl, you can almost imagine by the way the story is told, she's making a mess And you can almost imagine her nose is running. She's a hot mess. She has not prepared. She doesn't have a towel to clean up. So she lets down her hair and begins to wipe his feet. And then while she's down there, she kisses them. Now, before we read the passage, I want to just share with you some cultural points about this. Um, For any woman to let down her hair in public was extremely provocative in that culture. For her, the kind of woman she was, this was a big deal. This was, this was a major faux pas. This was a problem. I think about feet, and we all know that uh, feet in the Bible are considered dirty. You're walking around with open-toed sandals on gravelly roads and dusty roads, dry roads. That's why when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, it's such a big deal. And here she is in the supreme act of humility kissing the feet of him. Simon, he sees this, And he knows, he said, she is behaving exactly like I thought she would. She's behaving exactly like the woman that she is. And he's not a religious man because he's allowing her to get away with that stuff. And he's certainly not a prophet because prophets are clairvoyant in some sense. And he would know what kind of woman she is and wouldn't allow her to do that. Of course, Jesus is more than clairvoyant and he knows her heart and he knows his. And he says, Simon, I have a question for you. He said, ask away. Suppose there were two debtors, and one owed a moneylender, let's say, two months' worth of wages. Another owed a year and a half's worth of wages. And the moneylender forgave both. Neither one could pay. He forgave both. Which one would love him more? Simon, sheepishly, maybe, maybe when he was caught, does he realize the light's starting to turn on? He says, I suppose the one who has forgiven the most. And Jesus says, right, you are. Then he turns to the woman and he says, see this woman. And he's talking to Simon. He says, see this woman. And he reinterprets all of her actions as actions of devotion to God, uh, of gratitude, of extravagant love, of exuberant love, expressing her love. And that's the way he does it. And then then he turns to the audience and he goes, obviously, the people who are there, obviously she's been forgiven. He's looking at her and he, he announces, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a great story. Okay, so, so let's read it together. And uh, Luke chapter seven 36. We'll read it and then I'll make three points. Uh, 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating there, uh, was eating at the Pharisee's house. She, she came there with an alabaster uh, jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Simon. And then he turned to the woman and said, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, this is obvious, right? Therefore, I tell you, her her many sins, and Jesus doesn't deny that there were sins, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Ouch. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Wow, what a great story, huh? So, so there's this, uh, that one of the interesting things about the story is Simon thinks he's okay. He thinks he's the good guy. She's the one with the problem. And as the story is told, the surprise is, is that her actions are the virtuous ones. I have three points that I, that I want to bring up. One of them is the, uh, the joy of forgiveness. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I want to understand why. What, what is going on that caused that emotion in her? I also want to look at the danger of religion. And this is some of the things that prevented Simon from seeing Jesus and from seeing her and from experiencing that joy. And then lastly, I want to think, is this normative behavior? Should we all be feeling this way? And then we'll, we'll close out. So, so uh, before we uh, do this, I have... Um, before we explore this, why she was filming way, we have a, a story to tell you. So I'm going to go back to the second grade. And uh, I was in the cafeteria, and you probably can imagine, or you've been there, you've watched in the movies, I'm in a cafeteria table, it's a long white table, and there are kids on both sides of the table, I'm on this side. And the cafeteria is filled with kids, and they're loud and filled with energy and making a lot of noise, and... Um, this kid across the table from me he reaches down and he picks up a lunch bag a brown paper bag it's one of the, the the top was rolled up like this so it wasn't neatly folded but it was rolled up at the top and he grabbed that and he threw it at me and it hit me in the head and bounced off now I want you to know I'm certain and those of you who know me are probably certain as well it was unprovoked you know I can't imagine you know anything that would but I don't know I don't remember but anyway he threw it I'm lucky it wasn't a superman lunch pail right because it glanced off the side of my head And the whole cafeteria erupted in laughter. I'm in the second grade. I I, I want to be liked. I want to fit in. I want to be a part of them. And here the whole, or at least half the school, is laughing at me. My face turns red and I can feel the heat in there. And then, to my surprise, they weren't actually looking at me. Uh, the lunch hit me and opened up, and it was the guy behind me had somebody's tuna fish sandwich in his hair and on his face and down his front. It was a little bit of comfort for me, but but not much. A little more serious uh, story about school. And uh, uh, Some of you are going to Panama, and, uh, and you'll see my son, he's a missionary, and Kathy and I are very proud of him and the things that he's accomplished. But it hasn't always been that way. This kid was so hard to get through school. You can't even imagine. Always playing all the time. He would show up on the first day of class, and the teachers say, he, "He's so charming. He's so fun to be with." But it didn't stop. It went on for the whole year. It was like the rain drip, you know, just wore on him. And they were like, one time, this is a true story. One time, the principal called up. This is when he was a kid. The principal called up and said, "You know what? It was the end of the school year. They had grades were turned in. They got these last two days where they're having fun with the kids. You know, the three-legged race, the egg toss." And they said. John doesn't do good in unstructured situations. He, he could just come home now. He, he's not suspended, but, but, but if you keep him home tomorrow, that's okay with us. A true story. Now, that guy was the principal. He went on to another school district and became principal of a high school. His kids, he was a believer, and his kids actually went to John's youth group and he had to go see John and I think that, uh, that he actually supported John on the mission field for a while. But in the seventh grade, we told John, we had tried everything, and we said, John, If you don't pass, you're not going forward to the next grade. You know when you make promises like that, what happens, right? He he didn't pass, and so we said, okay, okay, you're not going forward to the next grade. And the school and the district and the teachers, they said, you can't do that to this kid. It will damage the kid. And I'm not recommending this, by the way, to anybody. But we stood by our guns and we said, you know what? You didn't earn the grade. You're not going forward. The next year, when they were first day of class and they were doing a roll call, um, she's reading off the name. She gets to John's. And she said, John Fowler. And she goes, John, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be in eighth grade. And he had to explain to everybody that he had failed and he was doing his class over again. Uh, When I heard the story, I I cried. Um, How could I, as a father, expose my own son to that kind of... um, uh, pain, humiliation, shame in front of everybody. Um, now, what do these two stories have in common? We want to be accepted. We want to be a part of the community. And sometimes we are excluded. Sometimes we're ridiculed. Sometimes you're not good enough. Sometimes uh, we push you away. You're not part of us. You're not one of us. You don't belong. And I think that's exactly what this woman is feeling, except for there are not two episodes in her life. She experienced this every day. When she got up in the morning, the lights came on, she opened up her eyes, shame was there. And she lived with shame all day long, ate shame, uh, and and navigated her life with shame. Her life reeked of shame every single day. That was her life. And then one day she met a a, a guy, a man, and he was the long-awaited, promised Messiah of Israel he was the Holy One of God and uh, the conversation probably went something like this and the only way the narrative works is if they've had a former encounter Luke doesn't tell us this but we find out later in the parable that it has happened and so it would go something like this maybe in contemporary terms Jesus would say oh I'm so glad I saw you today Uh, I have a message for you from God I can imagine what she thought great more shame that's exactly what I need And he said, we're doing this kingdom thing. We're putting this kingdom together, and and it's for special people. And you're exactly the kind of person that we want there. And I want to invite you to this. You could imagine she might have said something like, "Uh, well, sir, obviously you don't know who I am. And he goes, oh, no, no. I was there when you were born, and I watched you as a little girl, and I followed you every day of your life. You're, You're the exact kind of person that we want there. Could you imagine? Blow your mind. And I think one of the reasons why she's so filled with exuberant love and so filled with gratitude is not because they, we wipe the slate clean. You know, we often think about the sins. Oh, your sins are forgiven. The, the debts are paid. The, 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 the sins are wiped away. But it was the shame. The exclusion, the saying, you're different, you're not part of us. And, 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 and she lived that life and he said, you're welcome." I want you, you belong, you're special to me. And that was a big emotional thing. I think that was the thing that got her affected like that. There was this uh, guy who was a Japanese missionary and he went to Japan, and I'll share this quote with you um, from this book about the Atonement, New Testament and contemporary uh, 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 context. He goes to Japan and he's in seminary and he learns about justification by faith and he can go to Japan and he can say, the slate is wiped clean, your sins are forgiven, Uh, the debts are paid, and it didn't connect with them. And one of the reasons why it didn't connect with them is because it's kind of a shame culture. So you can wipe away my sins and that's fine, but you can't take away the shame of the sinner. In fact, my shame bleeds over into my family. And as he began to explore this, it was God's love that was the healing balm. If exclusion is to push you away, you're not good enough, you're not part of us, I don't want you, then the healing of shame is, I want you, and it's that arms of God. And so he writes this, in what ways... Uh, is the cross of Christ good news in Japan? In other words, what is the significance of the cross to the Japanese? In its exploration of this unique, uh, of this question, Krauss, that's the missionary, discovered that the cross provides liberation from shame uh, through the revealing of God's love through vicarious identification. I don't think we got the rest of it. Yes, we do. Here's the identification. So it's God's love is the healing thing. And here's the identification. Jesus identified with the poor... He was born and raised among the lower classes associated with outcasts and chose artisans, fisherfolk, and tax collectors for his disciples. He identified with the socially excluded and and despised and shared the stigma of their inferiority. The Bible says that Jesus became sin for us. He also became shame for us. And I think that this is one of the things that connected with her. When we think about this first principle of forgiveness, I would summarize it like this. Forgiveness is more than pardon for sin. That's huge. I'm not discounting that. That's huge. Forgiveness is more than pardon for sin. It it is also the welcoming embrace of a loving God that I want you, that you're important to me, that you're special, that you belong with us. Come to this kingdom. That was her experience. A little bit different for uh, Simon. Simon, I think, his commitment to religion prevented him from seeing Jesus prevented him from seeing this woman, who she really was. Um, uh, Before we dig into that, I want to make a couple of confessions. So, the songs were good up here, right? Uh, There has never been a song that's done up here that I haven't enjoyed now you wouldn't know because my hands never move. They're they're always down like this. You know, they they never move. I never smile. I never raise them. I never clap them. It's just not going to happen. Now it does happen sometimes. If I'm out on the trail with the dog or in the yard, you know, and I'm listening to worship music, and my arms are going like this, freaks the dog out because the dog responds to hand motions. You know, how <laughs> are we going left? Are we going right? What's going on? You know, so I'm out there, and uh, but it's not just when I'm alone because I laughed at myself. I was in the Houston airport uh, making a connection and I was listening to worship music walking down the, the terminal. And uh, I got to this one point and I raised my hand and then on the beat I pumped my fist. And then I laughed at myself and I said, How can you do this in front of all these people but you can't do it at church? You see, because when they're up here and they say, uh, Put your hands together. Come on, guys, help me out here. <laughs> do something. Don't just say, Raise your hands. They're not working. They're never going to go up. You see, I, was, uh, I came to faith, Kathy and I came to faith in a Baptist church and we didn't do worship like that. In fact, the only thing we did with our hands is we held the, ter- the uh, hymnal, right? That's all, all we did. Church is powerful, isn't it? What's accepted behavior, what's not accepted behavior. Let me tell you another story. Um, I was teaching Sunday school and I had been teaching this class for several years so I knew these people and and this is about 10 years ago, and I was talking to an associate pastor, a friend of mine, and I said, I said, we are going to study women in the church. It's going to be awesome. And he said, David, that is a dumb idea. I said, no, no, no. These people are, they go by the word of God. And so wherever the evidence lands, that's where they're going to be. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to go all the way to Revelation. We're going to study women in the church. He said, that's a dumb idea. It was totally a dumb idea. So, about the third weekend, though, there was this one woman, lovely woman, and, and she raises up out of her seat like this, and she shakes her fist at me, and she says, women must be silent in the church. Now, let me do that again so you understand. <laughs> she said, women should be silent in the church. Now, I didn't say anything there. I, I was afraid. <laughs> so, but when I got out of the car, I said to Kathy, I said, did you see that? And she said, what? I said, well, she said women need to be silent in the church, and she wasn't silent. <laughs> By the way, uh, I'm not saying what the side of that. That's the stuff over here that my wife told me not to talk about, right? <laughs> so I saying. the church is powerful, isn't it? It gets into us what's appropriate behavior and what's not. We can be kind of churchy. We can actually be good at church if we know the rules, what to say, what to do, uh, what to know and we can be good at church. And I don't think that's a problem unless that's how we define ourselves and how we define others. And here's where Simon was at. He was a churchy kind of guy. Now, I know he didn't go to church, Second Temple Judaism, Pharisee, but but that's how he defined himself. That's what a Pharisee was. He was different than the people of the land. A Pharisee was somebody who didn't do those things. He observed these things, and that's what made him a Pharisee. And that's how he viewed himself and that's how he viewed others. And Jesus is trying to tell him in this story. I want you to reconsider that, that position. I actually think that, that being good at church can, be, um, can protect us from shame, can protect us from shame and project shame on others. What do I mean by that? Um, if I'm good at church, somebody's not good at church. If I'm really, really good at church, I'm accepted, I'm in the in crowd. If there's an in crowd, there has to be an out crowd. Who are those guys? Is it the old people? Is it the rich people? Is it the poor people? Is it the people who are too white, not white enough, divorced? The people who don't know how to worship how we do, think a little bit different than we do. Who are those people who are on the outside? And Jesus is trying to get him to rethink that position. He has this quote up here. Um, now, in this one here, this is from a commentary in the Gospel of Luke, Joel Green. And he's talking about what Jesus is trying to do. The jury is open on Simon, too, because the, the story is open-ended. We don't know how Simon responds. Does he respond a positive way? He wants to transform Simon's view of the world so, uh, uh, and so to have Simon reconsider his premature judgment regarding this woman. Jesus' open query, "Do you see this woman?" is an invitation to enlightenment. The consequence of which would be acceptance of both her, i.e., no longer viewing her as a sinner, but as one who loves extravagantly. And it should be dot 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 and Jesus. I forgot that and left that out by accident. But I, I, I think that that's you know what he wants Simon to consider. Would you consider a time when you two are side by side in church? Loving God, worshipping God together. Can you imagine that? That, that time. I think that... Uh, and, and, and so for Simon, I think it's, it's this. And, and so he, he gets his identity from church and what Jesus is asking him to do is to rethink that position, to, to consider her differently. She knows something, by the way, That actually she's pretty, pretty sharp. She knows some things that he doesn't know. For example, one of the things she knows, if you watch... If love is related to forgiveness and she's loving Jesus, who does she think forgave her? Jesus, right? So so she actually she may be the only one in the room who realizes Jesus can forgive sin. But she also knows one other thing that in order for him to enjoy the forgiveness of sin, in order to have that joy, that gratitude, he has to be vulnerable before God. He has to be authentic before God. Now, she didn't have much choice, did she? Right? Uh, there's another part of this, and that's being vulnerable between each other. right? And church can protect us from that. Uh, Brene Brown, she's a researcher and a, um, a, uh, a professor of psychology, and she says we have a hard time connecting because we won't be vulnerable. We won't be authentic with each other. Now, the irony of the situation is the reason why we won't be vulnerable, the reason why we won't be authentic is we're afraid people won't like us. They won't accept us. And so we, we put up these walls or we put up these protective barriers and then they don't. And Jesus is saying, you need to be authentic. You need to be vulnerable, not only with God, but with each other. Imagine a world where you worship side by side. Imagine a world and a life and a church. Sometimes life has the potential to put its foot on our neck. It happens to everybody at different times in their life you imagine being in a church, in a family, where people come alongside of you? That's one of the great things about this church. And uh, and to belong to that would be a big deal. And I would say this, I would say our identity does not come from church. Rather, uh, church is an expression of our identity. So who we are isn't defined by our churchiness, but who we are shows up in our churchiness and our love for each other as forgiven sinners who meet together and worship and sing songs with other forgiven sinners. Now, there's one last thing. We'll do this last point and then we'll close up. I wonder, is her response unique? So she's crying and she's, she has this exuberant love and she's filled with gratitude. And you wonder, well, is that normative behavior, is, is Simon supposed to do that too? Are we supposed to do that? Are we supposed to feel that? And I think yes and no. She has a very unique experience. She has carried a lot of shame and she's released from that shame. In order to expect that kind of response from Simon, he would have to do all kinds of mental gymnastics to imagine himself so sinful that he could enjoy that. And I don't think that that's what God is asking. But what's interesting, what's irrefutable about this passage is that uh, love and forgiveness are tied together. Sometimes we think of, of faith, you know, your faith has saved you. It says, sometimes we think of faith as a, as a head thing. I have this faith, and love is a heart thing. Love is in the heart. And this passage says, not so fast. These things are together. And, and underneath that is this first principle foundation of forgiveness. If you've been forgiven, you will love. And that's kind of what, what, what this is. They had different experiences. I could imagine he could love just as much, but his experience might be, I'm grateful that I grew up in a, in a home that, that taught the Word of God and that protected me from the, the rough parts of life. He could look in the past and see the uh, Abrahamic Covenant and see it play out in, in Israel's history and finally the coming of Jesus, and he could enjoy that, and she could never see that. She would never in her lifetime be able to see that. And he could rejoice and have love in a different reason. Every single one of us has a different story, a different path. But each one of us must have this emotional connection. It's not just a head thing. So I would say, here's a quote um, from Clyde Snodgrass, uh, Stories with Intent. It's a classic on parables, and he's talking about this one. What is the relation of love and faith? This pericope, that's a short story, this pericope forces us to bring faith and love closer in relation than we usually do. In this passage, love is understood as the expression of faith And properly understood, it is difficult to imagine faith that does not involve love. This passage teaches us if we have faith in God, there's also an emotional connection. So I would say this. We think that faith is a head matter and love is a heart matter, but this passage will not let us separate the two. Something to think about. Now I've been arguing that, and I use this particular passage, but I've been arguing that... um, Uh, forgiveness is a first principle of Christianity. It's one of those foundational principles that's important to us. It's a big deal. It affects how we approach each other and how we approach God. I use this uh, verse or this uh, uh, sentence. Understanding forgiveness will help us avoid error in practice and have more authentic Christian expression if we can keep forgiveness in the frame. I think our Christian lives will be stronger and our practice will be better with each other and in our relationship to God. I think forgiveness is that important. It's something that we should always be thinking about. Now, if you're here today and you're carrying a load of shame, and it's not just for people who live in the East, everybody has shame. If you're carrying a load of shame, I've got good news for you. message from God that forgiveness is not just the wiping the slate clean of sin, but is the welcoming arms of God. If you're here today and you're good at church, this parable warns us And it suggests that, hey, don't let your churchiness or being good at church define your identity. Instead, have your identity defined outside, perhaps starting with this foundation of forgiveness, and bring that to church and have that be the expression uh, in church. And then finally, if you have faith, but you're not feeling anything here, there's something wrong with that this passage kind of tells us that one of the places you might look for that emotional connection is to look at that foundation of first principles, forgiveness. So, so, so love and faith are connected, they're one, and on the foundation of that is, is forgiveness. So, so, I I believe it's a first principle of Christianity. You start in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of man, broken relationship with God, broken relationship with man, broken relationship with creation. You go all the way through to Revelation 21 and 22, you have another garden setting with a tree of life and, and a restored relationship with God, restored relationship with man, and restored relationship with creation. Everything between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21 and 23 is a story of forgiveness. It's that big a deal to us. So let me just close with this. If somebody were to ask you, what is a Christian? And you were to answer them this way. If you were to answer that a Christian is a forgiven forgiver, if you answered, a Christian is a forgiven forgiver, I don't think that you would be wrong. Now, I'm going to pray for us. And the worship team's going to come up and lead us in the song. And I'm going to go back and sit with my wife. And my arms are not going to move, but it doesn't mean that I don't like the music. So let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, your goodness and your limitless grace and your forgiveness that we all enjoy. Bless this rest of this service and bless the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.